Design can be found in everything we touch, see and hear. I'm Luke Irwin and I've always been fascinated by making the sometimes rarefied world of design more accessible. This recording is from the By Design talk series created by the Sir John Soane Museum in partnership with me. These talks invite some of the most innovative and well-respected designers of our generation to discuss one everyday object that has inspired their design practice. The interviewers for the series are Will Gompertz, arts editor at the BBC, and Alice Rawsthorn, design writer and critic. These intimate conversations take place in the candlelit dining room of Sir John Soane's museum, bringing to life Soane's long-held ambition to create an academy of the arts where all forms of design can be celebrated. In this conversation, Alice Rawsthorn talks to Sir David Adjaye, who is known to be an architect with an artist's sensibility and vision. His works are of national significance. His largest project to date is the Smithsonian Institution National Museum of African American History and Culture. And in 2017, he was named one of the 100 most influential people of the year by Time magazine. Now we're very lucky to have David Adjay, Sir David, as I should properly call him, um, with us this evening, not least as he literally jetted into London earlier today, so he could be with us tonight and is jetting straight out again tomorrow morning. He is, of course, one of the most prolific, dynamic and influential architects of our time. His current projects include the National Cathedral in Accra, Ghana, um, the first major UK memorial to the Holocaust near the Palace of Westminster, and the the new building for one of New York's most beloved arts institutions, the wonderful Studio Museum in Harlem. David is one of the youngest of the gilded group of, of international architects um, known as Stockitects. Um, they include, <laughs> yes you are, they include um, well-known names like Richard Rogers, Norman Foster, David Chipperfield, Herzog de Moran, Rem Coolhouse and Bjarke Ingels and they're the architects who tend to be entrusted with the most ambitious, prestigious and often politically complex buildings. The late Zaha Hadid was of course the first woman to be admitted to that informal group and David is the first black architect to do so and his achievements are all the the more remarkable because cultural identity has always been a central theme in his work. So by it, uh, addressing issues of diversity and inclusivity and other narratives in architecture, he's really brought that discourse into the Western architectural debate for the first time, which is an astonishing achievement. He was born in Dar es Salaam, the capital of Tanzania, where his father was a diplomat. Both his parents are Ghanaian, and the family lived in different parts of Africa and the Middle East during his early years. But when David was 14, his family came to live here in London. He studied architecture at South Bank University, worked for a while with David Chipperfield, and then did a master's course at the Royal College of Art. He set up his first practice with a friend from the Royal College, William Russell, in 1993, when they graduated, and then opened his independent office at Jay Associates in 2000. Um, his first projects were mostly houses, many of them for artist friends, like Chris Ophelia, who he met at the Royal College. But very early on, he graduated to working on public projects, starting with the ideas stores, to incredible reinventions of the public library in one Chapel and Poplar in Tower Hamlets. He was then commissioned to design important buildings in London, the Stephen Lawrence Centre and the Bernie Grant Centre, and also the Nobel Peace Centre in Oslo. 
In 2008, he won his sort of breakthrough project on, on a serious global level, which was a very important commission to design the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture on a prime site in the Mall in Washington, D.C. Um, it was eight years of strife. He once described it as a bloodbath. But the result, as any of you lucky enough to have seen the museum, is an absolute triumph. Um, so David's practice has flourished ever since with the projects um, I described at the start, the cathedral, the Holocaust Memorial, the Studio Museum, and so on. He's also working on major urban master plans in Ghana and also in San Francisco. And all his work is infused with the personal research projects he's undertaken. Um, from 2000 onwards, for over a decade, Whenever he had free time, he traveled around Africa documenting the historic and modern architecture there. Um, and through his books and exhibitions and talks and his Instagram, those images have been shared with millions of people, many of whom just weren't familiar with Africa's architectural heritage and few of whom would have realized its richness and diversity until then. Now, like all the subjects of the By Design talks, David has been asked to choose an object and to talk about why he finds it so intriguing, interesting and inspiring. The object he has chosen, here they are, is so magnificent, seems very rude to describe it as an umbrella, but as David did, um, that's what I will call it. So question to David, why did you choose them? <laughs> um, the, the, the event that it's, it's used for is it's called a Bowman, a Bowman um, sort of pageant um, and it's basically um, it's a very important festival that happens weekly in the chieftaincies in, in Ghanaian culture um, or West African culture I, I would say even um, where um, once a week on what a day called Kwesiada, the Sunday usually um, the the chief or the head the, the king of the region reveals himself to his court as it were reveals himself to his community it started off you know I think like almost all sort of sort of royal pageantry, this way of trying to signify, and it was under shawls of some sort. But I think the encounter with sort of European travelers in the 18th century transformed this fabric adornment into this umbrella form and extended it, created this sort of very interesting, for me, an edicular, a kind of architecture that comes out only once a week, but is really now completely clear in the culture as the signifier of some person of, of sort of high standing in society sort of appearing and revealing themselves and having some kind of communication with, with the community. And, and this idea of just an object which sort of signifies that, sort of can be pulled away and taken away, I identify in the character with this simple device. Color motifs, it's usually sort of uh, emblazoned with insignia that talk about their power, their significance, their region, um, their lineage, and if you sort of, these symbols which are in, this, in these images are called adinkra symbols, really particularly speak to the, the ranking of the person that's um, being sort of addressed. And who makes them? Are they sort of made on a bespoke basis for the people who commission them? They are made um, by a royal, a sort of royal um, carpenters and umbrella makers. I call it an umbrella, it's not an umbrella. <laughs> I should uh, get the full, it's a bowman, a bowman structure. Um, they're made by these courtesans who are very skilled woodworkers, and there's no interest in trying to make them out of aluminium or anything like that, because that's been a, a very interesting conversation when I was 
um, researching uh, the forms, there's something about the fact that they're these timber sort of cut from the forest, almost sort of rustic um, sort of uh, articulations of this mechanism. It's, it's part of the sort of dignity of the, of the form. So you can see these details. They're very, very rustic in, 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 the, in the sort of frame. So it really is almost like this section of a piece of timber and then this incredible drapery is, is, is sort of adorned and it's embroidered usually as well with those symbols. And can anyone commission one or do you have to be a person of a certain stature? So it's like sort of sumptuary laws in yeah. that it's clearly delineated. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen um, a, a, a normal Ghanaian daring to go underneath one of those umbrellas. There is a certain sort of sense that you wouldn't dare do that unless if you... So as a sir, albeit only a British sir, <laughs> would you it. dare? <laughs> I couldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I mean, has there ever been ill feeling towards them? If, um, in the, have they been seen as invidious symbols of power or are they seen as being more benevolent? They're seen as more benevolent. You would think that they may have a, a I can't speak for the kind of long history of it, but I, can, I know that in the 20th century, I think after Nkrumah sort of um, uh, won independence, gained independence for Ghana, there was a whole reappropriation of the sort of the elements of culture that were sort of slightly lost in the colonial period. And I know that the idea of the Bowman pageantry was revived and maybe invigorated at that point. Um, and this idea of the kind of cultural performance of each of the regions and each of the communities under the structure as a kind of an identifying idea of what is Ghanaian culture became very strong again in the 20th century. So is that competition for the grandest ones? I mean, like in Brazilian Carnival, for example, <laughs> with the, you know, embellishing all the costumes and... It's more to do with which ones are the oldest ones and which ones have the most meaning. So actually you might find that there's a kind of great-grandmother who's under a very particular umbrella which has been handed down for many generations and, and the reverence of being able to see that umbrella when she comes out because it's her umbrella is a thing. So that's a cultural sort of moment. Did you see that umbrella? Did you see the motifs? Did you see the adinkras? In a culture which is not written but oral, the idea of what you know is very much part of the way in which information is disseminated and, and codes using Adinkra are ways in which large bodies of information are embodied within form. So it's very much part of the way in which um, West Africans read the landscape and read their psyche. And this is one of the um, objects that you've chosen for an exhibition you've curated for the Design Museum yes. in London that opens next month, isn't it, which is about monument and memory and how you fellow architects, <laughs> artists and designers have helped to create them. Could you tell us about that? Yes, no, I mean the, sh uh, the show is at the Design Museum, it's a little plug moment. They're doing a series where they're asking uh, architects who are working in, you know, in, in, in conditions right now to talk about things that are interesting them um, and things that they're finding compelling and for me over the last, um, almost since the beginning of my career, this idea of dealing with memories or dealing with memorials or dealing with using architecture as a device that marks moments in history seems to be something that has been coming up again and again and again. Whether it was, um, you know, one of the smallest projects I ever did, a, a pavilion with a an artist friend of mine, Hannah Nadim, to make a sort of pavilion for mothers in a community, mothers and children's uh, play in a community, which was, in a way, we sort of turned it into a kind of, you know, a symbol of mother and children, the importance of that in our society and the visibility of that in our society, not to be sort of moved away right through to the Smithsonian, as you said, or now the cathedral that I'm building in Ghana, which is 
yes, a cathedral, but really probably the first first real um, sort of wheel in the sense of um, conscious commission to make an architecture that may start to speak about a Ghanaian experience, about a collective identity, which is to do with the sacred rather than the, the programmatic. So, I mean, for me, it's also the first building that I'm doing where, yes, there was a programmatic brief, but it's almost in service to what the idea of the building might be. So can you tell us how those ideas will be articulated through the structure of the, the building? With the cathedral specifically, and you'll have to wait to see the show to see if what I'm saying matches, but um, I'm fascinated by the idea of seeing if one could almost directly translate this, um, what I'm calling the sort of structural layering of soft fabric, structural supports, a body in space and a base, usually a, a sort of wooden seat, as a sort of hierarchical system for understanding how to order a building, almost like a classical order. So, so in a way, the capital, the, the middle, and the plinth are almost articulated by this image of this distinction. The idea of, a, of translating those kinds of images into form is something that was happening in Egypt. It happens in the classical period. It is a cathedral, but it's not, the, it's not a traditional Christian cathedral. It's not a cross form. And in a way, the Christianity, I find, of West Africa is very much about this idea of the spiritual. You know, for me, the Bowman culture or the spiritual culture is personified by this idea of the divinity under this form because they are being revealed only at that moment then you understand the signification of the form. And that's, if we could use that as a way to try and understand how to make an architecture which talks about the coming together of the um, citizens of the community under this new structure, which is a kind of in, enlarged Bowman fabric form. And did you, when you were researching in Africa, you know, for years you documented photographically so many buildings, not just in Ghana, but many other countries. How did that work influence a project like the cathedral? Yeah, I think that my work, and I'm lucky enough to now, I'm working especially across West Africa and also East Africa at the moment, and I don't think I could have undertaken that work if I hadn't done that research. What it's allowed me to do is to very quickly be able to look at the issues that I feel are prescient in maybe the, the potential of the project. What's wonderful about the 21st century is that, that the sort of plasticity of the 20th century with its forms, which are really based on vaulting and cutting vaults in different ways, are now much more complicated with computer technology that we can actually make compound and convex, com concave and concave, convex forms, and we can actually multiply them in a very complicated way to create fluidity. So in a way, we can actually make matter, uh, solid form, look very fluid. Um, and that's what we're testing. And obviously, it will be a very important and imposing building within Accra and, and Ghana, a country that has had a relatively optimistic period recently and there's been lots of investment in the sort of practical infrastructure schools healthcare and roads and and so on um, so to what degree do you feel that this will reflect the sort of new spirit of Ghana and hopefully a yeah. even more optimistic future I mean I think that the image of most West African countries are they are developing but the imagery usually tends to just be of the rural and the underdeveloped and I think that this president his ma mantra is Ghana beyond aid so he wants to move the country and the image of the country beyond this idea of a country that's begging for things to happen 
I mean, there's always going to be a well to be dug in a village, in a country where, you know, there's some people that choose to have sustenance, <coughs> a sustenance life, and the question is how do you support that rather than forcing them to move to the city? Agriculture is actually going to be significantly important to the development of the country, and how is that going to be managed? And that's a, there's a huge discussion about all that. And the sort of hyper, what I call the hyper-modernity of the city, where there are towers being built. So there's, there's such a kind of a wide curve of the image of what you think progress might be. And you have to be careful about judging that. He wants to also propose that a country in Africa should be able to also produce an architecture that is about its aspiration for its future. Because the architecture of the kind of 90s and the early 2000s and 80s was really a kind of what, I call, what we all call developmental aid architecture. Usually very bad boxes built very badly, um, given almost as gifts through sort of deals. And they've peppered the landscape and they're really appalling pieces of um, architecture that need to be taken down. The problem with them is that they actually start to embed within um, the culture that an image of modernity are these really badly designed boxes. And then another sort of further image of that is maybe the images that you might see of Western cities, and that becomes the aspiration by default. And so the idea that one starts to build an architecture on the continent that also is self-referential and reflecting from that point word out with as much technological and you know, intellectual and you know, um, professional sort of smarts as you can bring to it. Well, let's go back to the beginning and why, why did you become an architect? Because you come from a very culturally sophisticated family, but I think you've also said that actually there wasn't a sort of family interest in no, architecture. No, architecture. I mean, I think architecture, I mean, uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to say it, but my great-grandfather was a mason so, and was a kind of timber mason. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and then on the other side, there are cocoa farmers, which was the kind of big thing in, in, those, in those times. Um, no, I think post-war, the big thing, uh, post-independence, the big thing was to get into this sort of classic administrative things, lawyer, politician, accountant, you know, first generation. Um, so I didn't really know anybody in architecture. And, but actually, I realized that I found architecture because actually it struck at that sort of um, deep, uh, sort of concern that I have, which had been brought out by just negotiating the environments that I had to negotiate in the 80s um, with my brother, who was mentally and physically handicapped, and at that time was going to a respite center that was horrific for me. I mean, that was one of the best, but it was horrific in the sense that, you know, I don't know if any of you, you some of you can imagine, but there, a time before the disability laws and accessibility laws um, were sort of put in place, I mean, the world was really quite, it was very much for a, a certain type of body in space, and we forget that, that, that that idea that the world has really been changed to manage these things um, quite quickly is, is profound. And that was, you know, for me, horrific. I was, for everything from bathrooms to, you know, spaces to, to be in. And your graduation project at South Bank yeah. University was on the a respite centre. Yeah, it was really a direct response to this idea of, you know, we have to be able to make a world that is not um, just about one kind of body in space. And did you realise at the time just how tough it would be to forge a career no. as an architect? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's basically a posh, rich, white boys, elitist profession. And although many of the greatest architects are staggering exceptions, of course, um, but it, you know, there are a few of them. And it's brutal as well, once you're in it. Yeah, I think if I'd known, I don't think I would have done it. <laughs> um, yeah, I really probably, I think it's, it's, it's a very difficult uh, profession, but it's a very rewarding profession at the same time, so I don't want to be too negative. 
for me at this time, I think the reason that I was able to do it was that I had a kind of passion that I needed to deal with in myself. Um, and I couldn't find another way to do it. It wasn't about being a politician or, or something like that. It, it, I felt that architecture gave me an outlet to be able to speak about the, the power of form and the meaning of form in the world. Um, and so I think that that sort of blinded my sight to the kind of difficulty of it. And, and in a way, what I wanted to do was I found any way that I could to make projects out of any condition that I was given, from doing film sets when I first started my career to, or to designing furniture. It was always about trying to find a way to have a discussion within the idea of filmmaking to push it to that. And every, every little win made me very happy. And what were your objectives initially? Because reinventing function, you know, making things fit for purpose, obviously goes back to your experience with Emmanuel, yeah. your brother. When did cultural identity become such an important strand of your work? Because that was not an issue that was discussed in architectural discourse um, at all when you were studying. No, it wasn't even an issue. Um, I think that Stephen Lawrence really started the kind of early awareness. And then I think with Rivington Place in Hoxton, which was about Stuart, making Stuart Hall's institution, this guerrilla institution that just didn't have a home in London but had been an incredible incubator for a lot of artists of, diaspora, of the diaspora. And really the conversations I had with Stuart Hall at that time, an incredible intellectual, um, who just really opened my eyes to um, the sort of sem the, some of the semiotics of the, of the discussion. I think after that moment, I could probably say that Stuart was really very important in kind of opening, making more conscious that conversation. You know, I, it's really interesting when I was kind of a uh, young student starting, you know, th you know, young students of color just didn't want to say they were black architects because that was seen as putting yourself in a ghetto. And I used to find that just so tragic. Yes, there's a kind of complicated idea of race, but essentially you are a black architect. Um, and I've, I was very happy for me. I mean, I, I, there was no discomfort about it. And I always feel, I always feel really problematized by the idea that somehow you're meant to feel problematic about the idea of the way in which black has been so kind of ghettoized into a kind of racial construction of not being part of the mainstream, um, that it, it, it actually is problematic for black kids to say that well, I'm a black architect, you know, that I'm an architect of color or an African architect or a Kenyan architect or whatever it is. But don't you feel that's changed? Because there has yes. in certainly yes. the last decade, totally but and hugely because of Stuart Hall's influence. Discourse. I mean, he was a Pioneer. massively influential mm. figure in, in British cultural life, mm. but there's been an explosion of interest in cultural identity. People are much more practically aware, yeah. much more conversant with the arguments and issues. Yeah. I mean, clearly there are massive challenges and sure. battles to be faced, but do you feel that, that young black and brown and other students of colour feel the same way or do they have a more eclectic? No, I, I mean, I think now. just looking at the, the young architects that are coming into my office of colour, I mean, there's a very different reading and there's, a, there's even a kind of deep pride now in even being able to um, speak from that position, which I, th I find really powerful and strong. I mean, there's a new generation of young African architects who are very interested in just going into their communities and building from like their communities. Francis community. Carré. Francis Carré. There's a whole clutch of very interesting uh, new architects. And, and in a way, if they don't take up that mantle, that space of constructing that sort of reconstructed form, as I call it, reconstructed body, will be lost. I'm thrilled that it's happening. And it needs to happen 
continually because in a way the whole project is you know about remaking all the time and clearly you were lucky although I say lucky it sort of belittles it because you worked incredibly hard and you earned it to have projects where you could engage with those issues like Rivington Place, Innover and yeah. the Stephen Lawrence and the Bernie Grant Centre to some degree yeah. um, at that time but did you all in a, such a white profession as architecture and such an elitist profession. I mean, all my women architect friends have faced appalling sexism throughout their careers. Did you also feel that there was racism that was practiced against you? No, I mean, I think that's a, that was a given. I mean, I, I got certain types of work or was only offered certain types of work and we went for competitions across the board and on every, on every uh, level. And I suddenly started to realize that the, the meditation was really not on the process, but on what you did with the work. <laughs> that actually one had to make, if one was interested in expressing ideas in architecture, that one had to get the work and express through the work. So to sort of be worried about the type of process in which one was getting the work was, for me, I felt a kind of fantasy that I needed to kind of give up and to just find opportunity in every sort of scenario that I was being given. Otherwise, I simply wasn't going to get any work. Yeah, it was deeply problematic at the beginning. It was really problematic with my studio. And it actually is what forced me to start looking abroad because it was easier in certain conditions. But also at the same time, especially the US, um, at the same time, I found even bigger issues in the US. So, <laughs> so not only were you trying to dodge it, and then suddenly you'd find a kind of myriad. <laughs> so expand, because obviously when you were appointed um, to design the Washington Museum, it was already a hugely contentious project that had been rolling on for years and years and years and suddenly had momentum. And there was a lot of criticism that uh, an architect of African parentage rather than African-American community um, had got that job, which must have been deeply was, unpleasant for you. It was very hurtful because it was a new kind of <laughs> attack. Um, and <laughs> um, But it, you know, it lasted, uh, I think, until... I think until the skin of the building started appearing and then it sort of started to subside. There's nothing like success. <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> no, it was, it was really tough. And I, and, you know, I, I had to kind of, you know, I, I, I had to make lectures where I sort of was talking about this idea of a, this notion that there are these boundaries I found very dispiriting. This sort of, this idea of these national boundaries that sort of divide people. I'm fine with the idea of, national boundaries that create a certain sense of sort of uplift and edification but I'm deeply worried when they start to divide um, which is the sort of negative effect of it and to see it even between African Americans and Africans was really tragic for me you know I basically chose an African American uh, partner to work um, with me as my executive um, and to show that actually a team of black-led professionals could deliver a major building on the mall very well and be successful. Uh, literally up to that point, there wasn't a precedent on the scale that we're talking about. And that was tragic for me too. That, so there was a kind of debate. And in the end, the, the reason I won was simply because I was probably the most notorious architect of color at that time. And that sort of shut that it down. That is not the only reason you <laughs> weren't, David. No, amongst <laughs> No, I mean, I don't mean to say that I was given it because I was black, because that would not happen. You, would, you just don't, you, would, you wouldn't do that. But literally, I think that amongst the community, there was a sense that David is clearly the one that's winning competitions and, and is ahead. And, you know, let's 
let's follow this. But you had some pretty scary people to convince, I think, when you were pitching oh, for gotcha. the no, I project. Think I, had, I had the, uh, if there's ever such a thing as a room of gods, yes. <laughs> Oprah, Colin Powell. <laughs> 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 Presenting to Colin Powell was, I think, the most traumatic. <laughs> um, Barbara Bush. Um, I mean, they were all there, yeah. I mean, it kind of goes on. You know, the, the head of American Express, Dick Powell, you know. I mean, all these incredible people. It was, I think, the first few times it was kind of terrifying. But they were very sharp. In fact, when they sort of embraced the project, it sort of gave, it sort of reversed the game because it sort of gave you a sudden sense of sort of like... Oprah likes me. <laughs> Oprah ticked. <laughs> so, so I think we're, we're okay on this one. Yeah. So can you tell us about the project? Because it is an absolutely extraordinary building. I mean, it's so rich in narrative and its symbolism and form and incredibly complex. So can you describe how you managed to construct this remarkable building that is a metaphor for its contents, yeah. the deeply tortuous history of African-American culture? I think up to that point, aspects of what I was trying to do were infusing this sort of abstraction of the buildings and the forms that I was working with. But it's the sort of, it's the first moment where I just wanted to fully um, engage the form and to not have the form in any way diffuse within the kind of overall structure. And it, I wanted it to be so significant because of just the reading of the, the narrative and the, uh, the idea that you know, most African Americans felt that they were literally, like South Africans at the moment during apartheid, felt that they were second class citizens, that they were the background, that they were always in service to but never part of the foreground. This idea of suddenly having this site on the mall and having a this presence to be, to be counted as part of the community, I realized was so strong that I couldn't have any sense of doubt about the presence of the image on the mall, um, the image of the building. So that sort of compelled a certain sense of what that thing had to be. And once I sort of brought myself to that, running with it and then letting it inform me about how it would make a different kind of building became um, just a way of following this sort of design methodology and what happened. So essentially, I wanted to make a building where traditionally you'd make a building and then put the content in. And in a way, the building can be a vessel, but it usually fits within a certain idea. And then the content explains the idea. And I wanted the building to, from its very silhouette, its very profile, to tell you that something was happening that was different and to signify its presence very clearly on this um, very important monumental core of the country as a way to, to bring that audience to the front uh, of the table, as it were, if the landscape was almost like a table. So the building form is this crown motif that's found in specifically West African um, shrine houses, and particularly that because um, there's a conversation about the 15th century, sort of the beginning of the extraction of Africans from the continent to the New World, about these forms being present as the shrine houses of those communities. And so it, I played a sort of game in my head of if somebody from that time was to come back, what would be the form that they would choose as the form for this building? And in a way, the building, for me, they were saying it was a museum, but already in my mind in the competition, it was a memorial and it was a kind of shrine to the project. So it was already a triple project in my mind. Um, it had to be a museum, but it had to perform all these other um, issues simply because of the lack of representation of all those issues that dealt with this incredible trauma. I just went to the kind of shrine houses of Benin, who are the, the Yoruba um, sort of incredible kingdom that comes from the, you know, the uh, Bantu Hausa kind of world. 
And really, what's great is that there are these incredible master craftsmen who were repeating and, and changing details that they felt went back several generations. And Olu of Esse, who's in many collections, is seen as one of the great master craftsmen from that region. And um, there's a kind of essay where he talks about being taught this as a secret art for many generations of how to build these venerations for shrines. And so I felt that this uh, motif, which is placed on the divinity or the narrative of the person's life seemed like a way to talk about the, the narrative of the African-American community, to use that as the device to mark the telling of the story of the African-American community. So it, it, it was a, almost a sort of direct uh, sort of taking of that form. And then in a way, I then wanted to make anyone who visited that experience to be almost as it were fused into that position, become a karyatid in that um, way in which the building becomes a hat for everyone because it simply has this floating base. It doesn't hit the ground. And you come in and complete the picture. You sort of are on a plinth. You stand, and the crown is on top of you. So you become the narrative, and it takes you into that journey. And then the journey into the building is not like a palace where you go through an awful lot of rooms. It is really based on the story of the whole thing, which was divided curatorially into three parts, the colonial uh, period and slavery, the migration from the agrarian south to the cities, and then now. So um, I basically put the history galleries and slavery into the basement as a kind of deep sort of moment where you would go into with no light and you would have to negotiate your way up. It's sort of like three miles of walking through the exhibition. And then you would end up at a place with a waterfall and a kind of reflecting space. And then you'd rise into the light and you'd have a light-filled space with these very particular views, which would bring the story that you are seeing alive by referencing things that are in the landscape to tell you that the landscape is still alive with the codes that are about the past and the present and will be about the future. And then at the end, you have almost like a sort of Belvedere to the view of the mall. Um, that's a sort of privileged view, which you know most congressmen and, and those people have, but you, it's been given to the citizens. So it's the first museum where you have a kind of overview of the entire thing. So that's the narrative of the whole thing very quickly. And when you describe it, you think, yeah, of course he'd do that. <laughs> Fantastic. But I mean, it's an incredibly courageous thing. I mean, it could have gone horribly wrong. Yes. And what's wonderful about it when you're visiting, <laughs> when you're so visiting the building <laughs> is that there are so many different ways of reading it. And yet your central message even if you don't know the historical context and the references, you would intuitively get. And you see people relating to it in that very direct but powerful way. So could you tell us about your plans for the Holocaust Memorial yeah. here? Yet another politically contentious project. project. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah, no, I mean, the Holocaust Memorial is, um, is a fascinating development from the kind of work that I've been doing in the sense that um, we're now dealing with um, 20th century British European history, but that involved the whole world. Particularly what's fascinating about that competition when Ron and myself and Neil were working on it, we were excited about the site because... Which is next to the Palace of Which Westminster. is literally next to the Palace of Westminster. It's next to Victoria Tower, so it's the opposite end of Big Ben, where Victoria Tower is, and it's that triangular garden. And we were excited about it because of all the Allied powers sort of marked the end of the war, Britain is the only one that sort of felt that it didn't need to make a monument. That sense or that confidence, which came from kind of, you know, being the critical lynch point, lynch 
pin and you know triptych of allies that sort of made this happen created something where um, in a way the idea of the Holocaust somehow doesn't exist in our landscape <laughs> it's sort of is something that happened in Germany and France and even in the US it's there and somehow in Britain you can't find it actually which is bizarre given that so many you know there were the Kindervagens Kinderv that brought so Jewish children here of the community that were persecuted are here and so, you know, 70 years on, nearly <laughs> to the date, we're now discussing a monument. And for me, you know, in, in sort of thinking about how Parliament took its time at that time during the war to get to the point where Churchill was given the power to do what he did. I mean, if you know the story, there's something about the way in which our democracies work sometimes which kind of creates problems. <laughs> and there's something about the memory the idea of not having markers in our memory that allow us to kind of understand mark moments in history that, for me, signified that we needed to be not just making a monument anywhere to the Holocaust, like finally, okay, 70 years on, we're going to get on with the last ones, but actually this idea of also to speaking to our democracy. And so the site being next to Parliament and holding Ambassador um, were sort of speaking to Parliament and saying that not only are citizens uh, important in understanding this, but also Parliament is also held accountable to things that can sometimes have devastating effect on our whole planet, seemed really powerful to all of us. And we said that because of that, we felt that the site, which already had become a site of memorial, sort of indirectly, you know, there's a monument to the abolition of slavery, not to slavery, but to the abolition of slavery. It's a, very wonderful technical. <laughs> Forgetting the many centuries of oppression before. There is before. no monument to slavery <laughs> and the effects of it, but there is a monument to the abolition of slavery. And then there's the suffragettes, of course. Um, and then there's obviously... Many years later. Many years course. later. And then there's obviously um, the, Rube, um, the Rodin, um, which is about you know that sort of medieval slaughter that happens. So there is a kind of marking in the garden, which has sort of turned it into a memorial garden indirectly, where you can almost go to these moments which really are epic moments in our sort of, you know, recent history. And so we felt that the Holocaust seemed right within this narrative. Um, it's, it's clearly part of these stories of things that have been overlooked and, overlooked and people that have sacrificed to, to make this. And this is appropriate that it's next to our parliament because it's talking about the, the human cost and the social cost. So we felt that we wanted to, in a way, as it were, complete or formalize this garden from just being a place where, you know, it's a sort of uh, place where you could just go to, but being something that becomes a much stronger identity in our, in our cultural memory. So that's what our project is about, is about activating the entire site as a place of cultural remembrance. But also, you know, using the, the project, the Holocaust, sort of what we did was, you know, Ron's sort of amazing move was to say, if we lift it up, almost as it were, rip the ground up, we can get this idea that somehow the ground is never as you see. You know, the wonderful thing about the British landscape is that it nullifies you to the idea that something may be wrong, because <laughs> it's so beautiful. It's about bucolic lines and sites. And in a way, parks and gardens are about creating pleasure. And so in a way, to s disrupt that pleasure moment and to say that, look, this is a site where actually this idea of everything being OK is not what this is about is very much the thinking of the project. And then this idea of then entering a world which is about education, because we don't want, to, we didn't want to make a monument which was simply a thing that you went to, because we think that that's not relevant anymore, that it had to be a thing that you went to, and also something that had a teaching wheel in it, which would 
teach a new generation um, the message and at least influence it from that point of view and be technologically sophisticated in that learning exercise in terms of its outreach with social media, etc. So the whole thing is really an experience and also a recoding of a landscape to become a very important memorial garden landscape in our national psyche. That's where we are and, and we're excited about it and you know it is a team of us working, I'm sort of the lead, but we're, there's a team that are equally working on specific parts in very precise ways. And we hope that that's going to be a very special project that really, um, I'm so sad it's taken so long to make that project. When is it likely to be completed? We're hoping that it will start sometime at the end of this year, and then um, it'll be three years after that. And so um, how would you like your career to evolve from here? I mean, it's been phenomenal so far, but are there, I mean, the last time I had a sort of long discussion with you about it, you were very excited by the big urban plans, the commission in San Francisco, and so on. Is that something you want to increasingly focus on, or I thought that. are I you eyeing <laughs> other directions? No, I was, I was really excited about master plans, and I still am, and I'm, I'm, we're working on several master plans in different places. Um, until the cathedral came along, and then the cathedral really just turned everything on its head for me, um, because it's sort of a, a different kind of brief again, and it sort of got me back to really thinking again about the, the importance of form in our culture and what it does. Um, I'm sort of obsessed with making buildings again, <laughs> after thinking that maybe I was, you know, kind of going to start thinking about. <laughs> I said I was going to think, you know, think about master planning. I mean, what's? I mean, I love the beauty about architecture and 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 the way in which it works within our time is that if you if you're measuring it against the time, it's continually asking questions that you never thought you could be in front of. And I'm really loving the way in which the sort of, I mean, some, you know, we are in very splintered times, but in a way out of that architecture, I think is able to, is that the bell saying we finished? <laughs> or is that a wonderful clock? <laughs> Slightly <beautiful> early. Clock. <laughs> um, the power of form in our psyche as kind of human beings is not to be underestimated. It's not just about, uh, texts and words, but it's also about the way in which form codifies things in, in the world and, and makes us think about the world in, an, in a different way. Somehow some people think the architects are going out and then so again we kind of swell back to the, to the centre of the conversation again about form um, and the way in which we imagine ourselves in the, in the world. So. Well, David, thank you so much. You've been incredibly generous with your time and your ideas. And I can't wait to see all the buildings and indeed the brollies. I mean, they are just so beautiful. They will be in the museum's show, so you'll actually get to see one. We have four of them in there. So, um, so a big thank you to the Soane Museum team and to all of you for coming. And huge thank you to David Adjaye.